Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you believe anything at all, you are welcomed here. I'm Reverend Mark Feldmeyer, St. Andrew's Senior Pastor, and I'm glad you're here. There are many ways to connect with St. Andrew's community from wherever you happen to be. If you're interested in learning more about St. Andrew, I'll be mentioning some ways to connect with us at the end of today's podcast. Let's take a moment now to hear this week's scripture reading before we jump into today's message. Friends, for our scripture today, we revisit the gospel according to Mark. Initially overlooked by the early church, Mark stood as the shortest and least commented upon gospel until the sixth century. Yet recent years, we have seen in recent years, we have seen a resurgence of scholarly interest, making Mark one of the most studied of the gospels. Mark's raw and less polished style contrasts with his peers, and his narrative burst with vivid energy, drama, mystery, and intrigue. Most scholars consider it to have been the first gospel written around 70 CE and a primary source for both Matthew and Luke. Today, we stand at the zenith of the author's narrative arc. Jesus, pivoting from Galilee, sets his course towards Jerusalem, making a significant shift in his ministry. With a deliberate shift away from public ministry, Jesus now focuses solely on his intimate circle of disciples. It's as if he senses the imminent conclusion of his earthly journey and endeavors to impart all he can to those entrusted with carrying forth his message. This pivotal juncture in Mark's account serves as a sort of interpretive key for all that has come before it and everything that follows. Let us turn now and dive into the words in this decisive moment in the lives of Jesus and his followers. Hear now the reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thus ends the reading. I'm determined to walk with Jesus. 
worship today, aren't we? We're going to worship today. Here we are in our second week of our Lytton journey. Our theme word, as you can see behind me, is timshul. It's a rich, beautiful Hebrew word that first appears in the fourth chapter of Genesis within the narrative of Cain and Abel. We all know the story. God finds Cain with his countenance, his face downcast in anger and resentment over the fact that God has seemingly accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice and refused his. God questions Cain, why? Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you. You must master it. There's that word, timshul, beautiful. It means you can, you may, you must. And as Rev. Mark explained to us, it's an important word that points to an even more important idea, the idea of choice or free will, the idea that in every moment of our existence, the doorways stand before us and we carry the rich, wonderful, and terrible burden of choosing which door to walk through. And the important thing is that we have the capacity to choose what is right and good just as much as we can choose otherwise. And if achieving shalom or harmony or God's will is our goal for us in the world, well then we can opt for a door that promotes unity and harmony or one that fosters division and discord. Tim Scholl. It's a reminder of our ability to overcome our human tendencies that point towards hatred, greed, our urge for control. It emphasizes that with God's strength, we can choose to exhibit a more compassionate, graceful, and merciful existence. And during the Lytton season, that's what we're going to explore. How do we master these impulses and choose the doors, the ones that either diminish our humanity or the ones that offer us a chance to surrender to God's grace, which gradually leads us to a perfection in God's divine love. And this week, our topic is the ego. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, really? I thought either that A, God was trying to tell me something, B, Rev. Mark was trying to tell me something, or C, that God has an incredible sense of humor. None of those set well with me, by the way. When I told my wife about it, she laughed so hard she almost passed out. Because as anybody that knows me or hangs around me for long enough knows that I have never met a reflective surface that I didn't like. 
God bless that woman. She loves me in spite of me. She really does. I like to tell people that my beloved is the barometer for my ever-increasing ego. She lets me know. She does. And then I turned to the text selection. I thought things were going to get a little better, and I thought, really? Okay. Because this is one of those texts, to be quite honest, that most people, especially preachers, approach with a bit of fear and trembling. It's a kind of like a standing in front of a mountain you're about to climb or going out on a journey that you know is fraught with danger and difficulty. It's hard. And this morning, we find ourselves situated right at the focal point of the gospel according to Mark, the narrative climax, if you will. The section from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to chapter 10, 52, encompasses some of the most powerful and pungent moments in all of Jesus's ministry as told in the gospel according to Mark. It begins and ends with Jesus healing blind men. It's a literary device. It's known as an inclusio. It bookends this section. And some scholars have said that this is a symbolic representation of the disciples and their spiritual journey from blindness to a clear perception of who Jesus is. And up until this point, as we heard, the ministry of Jesus has been focused in Galilee. But from here on out, the disciples turn south and work their way towards Jerusalem. And over them looms the stark reality of crucifixion and a cross. Whatever else these disciples and these excited crowds may have thought about Jesus up to this point, healer, teacher, powerful enemy over spirits, everything in this moment changes. And to understand our text, we need to back up a little bit. Because as the disciples were walking from the little bitty town of Bethsaida all the way to the huge town of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus kind of turns to his disciples and asks them a simple question. Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, Elijah, still others prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And of course, here comes Peter. You're the Messiah. Of course you are. Now, it seems like a weird question to us moderns. And we might respond with, don't you know who this guy is by now? I mean, look, one of the great dangers of listening to this text in particular is assuming the position of one in the know. Here we are looking back at a crucial encounter and all the misunderstandings of these stupid disciples. And we know better as the reader. We know that Jesus must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. We know what it means to be a Messiah. And so we inevitably look with a little bit of pity and little impatience on these ignorant disciples and the crowds. And we are quick to point out how they are deluded by false understandings of what it means for this guy to be a Messiah. They've failed to grasp God's plan of redemption, we say. And I have to tell you, loved ones, that that perspective of historical superiority will only serve to distance us from this text and the crucial message that it has. It'll be for someone else and not really for us. And it's a good question. Who do you say that he is? A poetic idealist? A beautiful sentimental figure? A little bit obsolete for the 21st century. Some have said that. An inspiring leader of causes, but not really a revealer of the divine. Some have said that. Who do we say? that this guy Jesus is? Would we like to think of him as a great human teacher? Would we prefer like a Superman that could just zap all of our problems away just like that? Better yet, what is our life, our attitude, our words, our sense of value? What do they say about him? 
And look, I believe, loved ones, that all of us should spend time thinking about and responding to Jesus' little inquiry. There is even more that Jesus is asking in this seemingly innocent and straightforward question. And perhaps it's this more that is most challenging, most demanding. It's the more we wish we could just avoid. Because who do you say that I am is at the same time, who will you say that you are? That's the rub. That's the difficulty. I mean, look, if I only had to provide an answer for who Jesus is, I could write an essay about that, no problem. That's one thing. However, answering the question of Jesus' identity is also giving voice to my own. Who you say Jesus is, maybe, is who you've decided yourself to be. You can't answer that inquiry without revealing just a, a little bit of who you are. Or maybe we could switch it around who you are reveals who you have decided Jesus to be. And look, it's not a test. It's not a test. There's not like a right or wrong answer. It's just a simple moment. It's a moment when you come face to face with your own commitment, your own journey of discipleship, your own identity. It's when you must admit that in a little bit of way, how you follow Jesus connects in some part with the confession of who you believe him to be. And I don't know if you've noticed, but... There's a little lack of correlation these days between claims about Jesus and choices regarding how lives are lived, at least in my humble opinion. Whether that be individuals, communities, or dare I say it out loud, the church. But who do you say that I am is not just an issue of integrity. It is not just an evasion of hypocrisy. It's being willing to step out and risk being known for what you claim to believe. It's recognizing that your identity cannot be separated from an image that you have of this Savior. And Peter has to answer this question for himself. And so too do we. Maybe one more iteration before I trail off. Who do you say that I am is maybe a question we should ask others of ourselves. Who do you say Jerry is? Whoops. Who indeed will people say we are? Are we willing to ask such a question? Or do we stay silent, afraid what others might say, perhaps worried of some truth being uttered, avoiding a question to feign a confidence that maybe we don't really have? Beloved, Jesus knows it's one of the most challenging questions to ask, which is why he asked it in the first place, and which is why he has to ask it first before everything else begins. Now look, after Jesus asked this question, I imagine that kind of like right now, there was a brief awkward silence. People looking at him. They hesitated to share their personal thoughts. However, Peter, of course it was Peter, broke the silence and expressed the belief that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one destined to fulfill God's promises to Israel and liberate her from adversity. Now look, it's vital to be clear on this point. Calling Jesus Messiah in this moment is not the same as calling him divine. The author of the gospel believes this, and he's going to show the reader that later on. But this title right now in the story is about something else. It's a politically dangerous and theologically risky claim to say that Jesus Christ is the true king of Israel. No question. 
The, the disciples weren't expecting a divine redeemer, as weren't most Jewish people at that time. They were longing for a king, and they thought they found one. Splendid, fantastic, here he is, right? And then Jesus just flips all this around on them. He began to teach them, saying, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed? And after three days rise again? What? Excuse me? This wasn't what Peter and the rest of these cats had in mind at all. They may not have thought Jesus was a military leader, but they certainly didn't think about him going straight to his death. I mean, look, as Charlie Brown once said, winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. <laughs> right? It, it appears that Jesus is telling them he's going to lose. And worse yet, he's inviting them to come and lose with him. Peter is appalled. He is absolutely appalled along with the rest of the disciples. Nothing has prepared them for these words. Peter, not wanting to embarrass Jesus, of course, takes him aside protectively, wanting to forcibly straighten him out, and he rebukes him. He says, dude, that is a stupid thing to say. Why would you say that? Everybody knows that's not what a Messiah is all about. You're going to kill morale around here. Come on. But if Peter is appalled, Jesus is really appalled. He's downright angry. He's upset. What Peter wanted to be this little private dressing down of Jesus becomes a public put down of Peter. He turns his back on him, literally turns his back on him. How insulting can that be? By turning and looking to his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. You are thinking of worldly things and not divine things. Yikes. I mean, if that sounds harsh, that's because it is. That's harsh. That verb, epitomao in the Greek, it's a strong word. It means to rebuke. It's used twice, once by Peter and once by Jesus, right here. Elsewhere in the gospel, it's the same verb, epitomao, that Jesus is used to rebuke demons and get them out of here. It's a strong word, to rebuke. It means to confront, to condemn with the sole purpose of effecting radical change. And if that wasn't strong enough, we get this lovely little ditty. Get thee behind me, Satana, Satan. Which incidentally is the breath prayer that I use on I-70 when I get cut off. <laughs> it works, don't judge, it works. He turns his attention to everyone. He calls to the crowd and says, look, if you wish to follow after me, deny yourselves, take up your cross, Follow me, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And I say again, in all honesty, to Peter and his friends, this was ridiculous. Peter's struggle to accept this concept of a Messiah was only natural, given his background. It contradicted every preconception he held. It's understandable that he resisted and couldn't fully grasp what was going on. And I know it's different for us. It's, it's kind of different 2,000 years later, right? I mean, with all this history and tradition, we've kind of become familiar with this idea of a suffering savior, a suffering servant, like we read in Isaiah. We sing the hymns, don't we? I remember from when I was a little boy, in the cross of Christ I glory, we sing, right? Or that, that other one, Jesus, I my cross have taken. We belt it out without hesitation. However, I wonder if deep down we still struggle just a little bit in our hearts, in our minds, our attitudes, and our actions. 
Because though we may not articulate it, maybe we prefer a more convenient religion that avoids this ugly necessity of sacrifice. It's common for us, I think, to reject Jesus this way, not, not necessarily out loud, not intentionally, but maybe through a couple choices. When Jesus challenges us to maintain this unwavering faith, to reject violence and oppression and power, to choose, rather, a path of love, of compassion, of self-denial. If anyone wants to follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's challenging. Take up your cross and follow me? Look, he paints a vivid picture here for his disciples of a condemned person bearing the weight of a crossbeam on their shoulders as they walk to the place of their own execution. And besides, who wants to be a follower anyway? Ugh. Being a follower is not something we really emphasize here in America, is it? No college commencement speaker has ever congratulated the graduates on becoming the followers of tomorrow. <laughs> Nobody makes sweeping biographical documentary films about great world followers. Nobody gives awards to recognize the contribution of community followers. No one frames their resume to highlight they exercise strong followership in their work life. <laughs> and nobody's heart swells with pride when a fellow parent comes up to them and says, man, you know that kid of yours? He's a good follower, All right? <laughs> Nobody does that. What's interesting to me is during the peak of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, amidst the trials and sacrifices endured by Christians for justice and redemption, would gather his staff each morning for prayer, and as they concluded, he frequently posed to all of them a very pungent question. He said, if being Christian were a crime, would there be sufficient evidence to convict us? Now, initially shocking, that strikes me differently now. I, I know that Tutu aimed to remind himself and his team of their identity and purpose beyond their actions. They weren't just leaders in a vital social struggle for dignity and freedom. They were primarily followers of Jesus Christ. Their mission wasn't merely about leading, but about embodying Christ's love, a love that surpasses all resistance. And without embodying this faith, well, their leadership would lack meaning. Their lives and ministries needed to reflect their commitment to follow Christ for their leadership to resonate. And that's challenging. Look, in a world that thrives on defining winners and losers by numerical success, where power is equated with strength and privilege and access, where wealth is concentrated in the hands of just a few, in a world where advancement more often than not means leaving others behind as you trample them underfoot, we encounter a savior that calls for self-denial, suffering, death, and resurrection. When we fall into the trap of believing that our path of discipleship should be easy, comfortable, convenient, or that Jesus should just constantly affirm us rather than challenge us, Jesus reminds us of his own journey to the cross and calls us to follow him. Despite our tendency to prioritize the self-interest and the view of a faith that just says, what's in it for me? Jesus openly speaks about his suffering 
and he invites us to align our lives with his sacrificial love. Look, I know it's tempting. It's tempting just to set this little ditty aside, isn't it? Just to put this text aside. Believe me, there was more than one time this week when I wanted to do just that. However, in line with our theme of Timshul, this desire is something that we can, we may, and we must overcome. Because, beloved, it is crucial for all of us to recognize that if we truly want to follow Christ and contribute to a world of shalom, that self-denial and sacrifice are key ingredients of that equation. It means making ourselves not an end, but a means in building God's kingdom. It is subordinating the clamoring ego with its shrill claim for priority, its preoccupation with I and me and mine, its concern for self-assertion and self-promotion, its insistence on comfort and prestige. Now, denying ourselves isn't merely some moral exercise, but a way of aligning ourselves with Christ's mission, putting ourselves in service to his cause. And beloved, Christian love inevitably involves sacrifice. But the good news is that when we follow this commandment to love as Christ is loved, we also enter into the power of the resurrection. And I know it's hard. I'm not naive. Sometimes loving people like this, it's a sheer act of will or obedience to something you have to do. But when we can throw off our self-imposed limitations fueled by our ego and just simply love as Christ has loved us, we begin to think and to embody Christ. And I have found, incidentally, that more often than not, when I take this step into the unknown in faith, looking to God for strength, that grace always follows, and that unity and healing ensue. It's a simple truth. Imitating the self-giving love of Christ, loving as Christ has loved us, leads to deep understanding of ourselves and our reason for being. I've told my children a million times over the years, love given is love actualized. You know, I learned that truth from a Charlie Brown cartoon. <laughs> love Charlie Brown. It's the one where Lucy gets sick and tired of Linus in that blue blanket. Yeah. And when he's away, she gets his blanket and she takes it in the yard and she buries it, right? And Linus comes back and this is a catastrophe of epidemic proportions. He's like, where is my blanket? I can't live without my blanket. He's in a frenzy. And Snoopy, seeing what's going on from a distance, uses his trusty nose and proactively sniffs out the blanket, digs it up and returns it to Linus. And they are elated beyond imagination. You saved my life. My life is saved, he says. They both celebrate and do that Charlie Brown happy dance. You know, you've seen him do it. <laughs> and in the very last frame, lying on his doghouse all alone, Snoopy says to himself every now and then, my existence is justified. <laughs> Let me ask you something, church. When do you feel most alive? Is it not when you are giving yourself to others, serving the need of another, pouring out the love of Christ upon another without any thought 
of return. Beloved, behind the warnings in this text stands this beautiful promise. Those who love their lot, lose their lives for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Ultimately, following Jesus is difficult, but it's not a losing proposition. It's the key to everlasting life and shalom. And friends, that is not just in some far off place. It's right now. It's today. The joy of following Jesus on the path of the cross eclipses any joy that we can dig out of life through the pursuit of wealth, power, or pleasure. And that's really all I want to leave you with today. That's it. All of this, just for this. Follow Christ. Self-giving love is the only path to life. It is the only path to shalom. Our takeaways for today. Tim Scholl serves as a reminder to overcome our human tendencies, our negative human tendencies. Who you say Jesus is, is who you have decided to be. And finally, follow Christ, because that self-giving love is the only path to life and shalom. Let's pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit, that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning into this week's podcast. If you'd like to be connected to learn more about our St. Andrew community, or would like to financially support our work, including this weekly sermon podcast, I invite you to visit gostandrew.com or email us at connect at gostandrew.com. Be blessed and be a blessing. Until next time.